Rick Massa is engaged in the biggest gun battle in U.S. history with one of the high-incident bandits. As he goes to take another shot at the bandit, he discovers he has a really big problem. So while I'm shooting him, the one thing you never want to do is go to slide lock. That's where you're out of ammo in your gun. So I figure, okay, I'm going to ta do a tactical reload. I'll take the magazine out, save it in case I need it again, put a new magazine in. So I go down, and you should always have that magazine coming up first. So I go to do a, a rollover on my side. I'm prone out. We're still engaged. I go down to my pants pocket, and there, there's no magazines there. I thought, oh, shit. You know, what next? And I look over at the side of our, because I'm at the back of the police car. I look over where I came out of the car, and how ironic, all four magazines are just laying there on the ground. Welcome to Game of Crimes. So where did you guys get geared up at? Was that before you hopped in the car? Did you have to wait to get geared up until you got somewhere? Because, you know, at some point you got you, you got vests, got to get your weapons. So at, at what point do you guys gear up? I was able to put my utilities on there. Steve only got uh, his utility top on. He had shorts on. Donnie had, uh, had his utilities on, and I, Pete got his on real quick before we headed out. Our gear... As we get close to the, the off-ramp of the, on the freeway, all the freeway was shut down, and all the traffic was all backed up. And we then cut in between cars over to the shoulder um, a number of times and then take an off-ramp. And I can remember when we got off the freeway, all four of our cars, we parked, pulled over opposite side of the street so we had cover from uh, some buildings. And I remember getting out, and it sounded like a war zone. It was a very eerie feeling because this is a major, this is a major thoroughfare through North Hollywood, where there's businesses on, businesses on both sides of the street. Uh, we're at the far end of a mall, strip mall. So you have businesses, big parking lot, and there was nobody out. Not a soul walking the street, no cars, and then you could hear around the corner off in the distance a lot of gunfire, and in that all of a sudden you're thinking, oh man, holy shit, and and this is what I don't want to sound corny or anything, but this is what we do. This is what we're supposed to do. This is what we train to do. We don't train to turn around for gunfire and go the other way. This is what all the training goes into. So jump out, back of my car, I open it up. And one of the other things while driving down to the bank, the sergeant also puts out, since these are the guys that are heavily armed, body armor, do not deploy your MP5s, which is a 9mm round, because a 9mm is not going to penetrate it, even though, even though it's coming out a little bit hotter, it won't penetrate the body armor they have on. He said deploy your assault rifles. 
So now we get down to Victory Boulevard off-ramp. We all pull over, the four of us, and we're pulling our rifles out from under all of our gear. I get put my magazine in, chamber around. I take three more magazines, four more magazines, and put them in the pocket, the front pouch pocket on my, uh, my utilities. And all four of us, at the same time, jump into one car, and I, Don's driving. Pete is the right front passenger. Steve is sitting next to me on my right, and I am behind the driver, all four of us. So, but when you're geared up like that, does everybody, even though you know what they've got, do you guys have your, I mean, do you, did you put body armor on with whatever you had, or did you just get suited up? I suited up. What we do is our body armor is part of our taco vest. So okay. I just went ahead and threw the tack vest on. Steve, Steve and Donnie, they have car 15s, which is a smaller version of the uh, M16, and they only have semi-auto on it. I have a full M16 with a fixed stock, and I did have a full auto selector on mine, but I never used it. I, I stayed on semi-auto. So all four of us get in our car, uh, get in the one car, and as we're driving around the corner off of Victory onto Laurel Canyon, um, it even gets more surreal because now you see, you hear the report from the weapons, the report, the sound from the pop-pop of the 38s and 9 millimeters and the sound of the suspect's weapons, the AK-47s. It's, it was deafening. You could, you could definitely tell the difference of the rounds. We come around the corner. The bank is not more than maybe a couple hundred feet south of, uh, south of the intersection. We pull up into the driveway on the south side of the bank because we see a couple of detectives behind their car. And we pull up to get some information as to where the suspects are. So we pull up, and the detectives, they told us they were wondering when SWAT was going to get there. They were actually extremely happy because they were worried that, uh, that they were all going to get killed before we could get there. That's how fast this whole thing was going down. They said they were on the other side of the bank, and then Pete, who was seated in the right front, notices an armored car stopped at the curb. And he runs over, and there happened to be a couple of patrol officers and a detective in the back of the armored car. And so he is going to take them and formulate a plan to start doing rescues. Hey, Rick, at that time, real quickly, at that time, how many, how many rescues did you think you had to do? Did you guys have any idea in terms of, I know that you said you had five to seven officers now, but did you have any idea the number of rescues you were going to have to do at that point? We had no idea how many rescues, and, and the thing that was really hard we had no idea where those officers were. We, we had no clue as to, you know, five, seven officers down, but we're talking about city blocks. We're talking about a mall across the street from the bank. We're talking about, and, and police cars that are star, stopped in different places on, on Laurel Canyon that are all shot up. So the, the suspects, when they went into the bank, this is before we get the call to go down there, they're going to hit this Bank of America. They're thinking it's just like the two banks they hit back in May, not the year earlier. 
So they're going to walk into the bank. They park on the south side of the bank, get out of their car, and they are all dressed in black, body armor bulging out like the Pillsbury Doughboy, dragging a hamper-sized duffel bag behind them, AK-47s draped over their shoulders, pull their ski mask down, and they turn and they start to go in the bank. What they didn't realize was at that same time, this is before we're, this is while we're still at the academy figuring we're going to run. What they didn't realize was a black and white police car that was responding to an unrelated police call, a business dispute or, or something like that, that was assigned to North Hollywood, was southbound on Laurel Canyon. And they turn and they look over just because they're looking around as they're driving around. And they look over at the bank and they see the two guys going in the bank. And they go, oh, shit. You almost and have to so, do a double take at that point go, did we really see right, that? That's exactly what they did. It's like shake the head. What was that? And so as they, they go in the bank, as, as the suspects turn and go in the bank, they, police officers weren't seen. They put out um, that they were 15A3 was their call sign. And they put out uh, 15A3, officer needs assistant, robbery in progress at the Bank of America, Laurel Canyon and Archwood. And right away, they then hear gunfire. Remember what we said, take over bandits, go into a bank. They, the two suspects, Emil and, and Larry Phillips, they were... They were exactly the same in each bank robbery. Because if it worked before, they're creatures of habit. If it works before, it's going to work now. And it'll work on the next one. And the Bank of America uh, at North Hollywood was that next one, number three. So they walk in, bullets in the ceiling, butt stroke the girl to the ground, the, the elderly lady to the ground. She wasn't moving fast enough. And when they heard the bullets in the ceiling... They now put out 15A3, officers need help, shots are being fired in the bank. And now they're putting, sending out every police black and white unit that could respond in the San Fernando Valley. So suspects go in and they do what they normally do, and that is go in, shoot up the Lexan glass, bandit barrier door goes into the vault. But here's where they became victims of their, own, of their own crime. Because of the two bank robberies, in which a million and a half, 1.6 million was taken, Armor of America, which was the armored car company, they decided to change their protocols. They're now going to deliver only half of the money in the morning, and they'll come back out around noon and deliver the other half for the afternoon uh, crowd at the bank. So they go in, suspect goes into the bank. Montesorano is out walking around, watching his, his prey, so to speak, that are lying on the ground. Well, hey, Rick, right there. So what you're saying is that they waited long enough then for the armored car to make its delivery that morning. And that was their cue to wait and go in and rob right after that? Correct. You know, there, there's, there's no doubt that these guys, when they were, before they started doing bank, they were staking banks out. They, 
they did something to where they knew they only had eight minutes. They did something where they could, they would time the, the deliveries of the money. Like I said earlier, they did their homework on doing this, and it paid off for them the first two times. What they weren't figuring is they were going to get seen by a unsuspecting black and white looking over at them, seeing them going into a bank. And that's what, who knows where they'd be 25 years later, or even you know the following month if they would still be hitting banks. So they go in, and Phillips is extremely pissed because only half the money's there. He then goes over to the back of an ATM, and those ATMs are more fortified than you could imagine, puts a number of rounds in the back of the ATM that services the outside and is unable to gain entry into that. Even with armor-piercing rounds, couldn't get into it. <laughs> and those ATMs have thousands upon hundreds of thousands of dollars in cassettes inside of them. Wow. So now they've been in the bank for eight minutes. They take their 250000 bucks and they start to go outside, unknown that they were seen going into the bank. And what happens is they walk out and they see police cars everywhere. Well, there was one detective that said she thought that when they came out, they would give up after seeing the number of police cars. And her comment was, quote, we thought we had the tiger by the tail. And it was anything but the truth. As soon as they saw the police cars, they opened up on them. They opened up on one black and white in the intersection of Laurel Canyon and Archwood, which is just catty-cornered of the bank. And they opened up on that, and it took 50, 57 bullet holes in it. Wow. And the sergeant that was behind that police car was shot on two separate occasions. He got shot then, and then again, uh, he got shot later. Once up in the arm, upper body, and then once in the, uh, in the leg. There's a kiosk, a place that makes keys, kind of like an old converted photo mat type place, little kiosk that's in the strip mall right across. Parking lot strip mall takes up two huge blocks across the street from the bank. Took 150 rounds from the suspects. The owner of that was in the bank, was in the... Um, not the bank. He was in the uh, in the kiosk, uh, lying on the floor, and never got hit. Man. So, the uh, the one black and white. So we're coming around the corner now, and we are we get the information from the detectives that they're on the opposite side of the bank, and I'm trying to put all of this together for you, what the suspects and what we're doing. We get back in our police car now. Steve goes from the back seat with me, and he goes up into the front seat. I am the only one in the back seat. At that same time, Phillips and Matasreno, Phillips at one point, they, the, the victims in the bank, the tellers, the, the, the people in the bank, they see both of them go out. Phillips winds up going back in the bank at one point. So somebody looks up, and they see, oh, two went out. There's still one in here. That's a third suspect. There's what plays into the possibility of a third suspect later. So he goes back out. They decide to go on the street, and, and they're walking. You got to remember, they've, there's 
30-some police officers now that are firing their guns at them, and they're just walking down the street like it's a Sunday afternoon in the park. They walk over, they get into their car, the trunk lid is up on their car, and Larry Phillips decides to take out his HK-91, which is a 308 sniper rifle, and now he is shooting at the, at the media, at the media helicopters. And he winds up hitting KCAL-9, Channel 9's helicopter, rear stabilizer. Doesn't bring it down, but now he's shooting at anything and everything that moves. He doesn't care. It's almost like a, like I said, it's a, a gardener watering his flowers. He just spraying it's, it everywhere. Just spraying it everywhere he wants. An unknown police officer winds up shooting and hitting the magazine of the... Um, of his HK-91, disabling it. He calmly puts it down, picks an AK-47 up, takes a magazine out, inserts the new uh, drum magazine, and then continues shooting. At this time, this time, uh, Emil Matasreno has gotten in the passenger side of the car, their car, and he is starting to drive out. Larry Phillips walks along the passenger side, and he's driving with, with one hand over his left foot on the gas, one hand over steering out of the passenger side as they're trying to make their way out of the parking lot. Larry Phillips winds up having a stovepipe malfunction. What a stovepipe malfunction is, is anybody can have it in any type of a weapon. Uh, I mean, uh, any Except type of a revolver. automatic. Any type of a semi-automatic weapon. Right. And it's when, for those listeners who don't know what it is, it's when the shell casing starts to exit but doesn't get all the way out of the ejection port. And now you have a spent round that is sticking up. He didn't know how to clear it. Because this he has a malfunction with his with his AK. Drops the AK and pulls out a Beretta 92F, 9mm. And he starts walking down the street, while Emil Matasreno's on the street now, and he's walking down the street. We're at this point pulling up to talk to the detectives. As he's walking down the street, an unknown police officer shoots him in his right hand, and he drops the gun, picks it up. Now, keep in mind, he's got 40, he's got 43 pounds of body armor with 27 hits in the body armor without penetration. Damn. Every time he took a hit, he flinched, but he just kept on walking. There was a broadcast made by a uh, sergeant to try and take a headshot. And I've had this question asked me, why didn't they try to shoot for his head? You're trying to take the size of a soccer ball from a huge distance across the street where police officers were taking up cover that's moving. So you're trying to hit a moving target that's no more than, what, 10 inches across that's shooting AK rounds back at you. Yeah, that's movie, that's movie shit stuff. People thinking that you can just eyeball it at 45 yards and, you know, shoot underneath your left arm or behind your back. It's like, plus you got adrenaline pumping, shit's happening. I mean, you're, you're on edge. It's like, there's a reason why you shoot center mass. It's because as your gun's going all over that's the place, that's the target. easiest target yeah, to yeah, hit. Yeah, that's yours. Big sharp target, yeah. And keep in mind, we're talking about 38s, 9 millimeters, and shotguns. 
are, they're not going to hit that kind of a without any type of optics on them, and they're going to try to take a shot that's that's over. Well, what, a shotgun's useless away. at that range. If you're 100 feet away with, and all you've got is buckshot, that's not going to do anything. Yeah, the the uh, the slugs were kept in the uh, in the station, watch commander's office. Oh, 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 well, wait a minute. Say that good again. Good place to keep them safe. The slugs, they they had slugs available to them, but they were kept in the station. They could only be deployed upon request. Uh, well, we'll it's just crazy. leave that hanging there for a well, little they, bit because we've got bigger <laughs> fish to fry right now. So these are uh, lessons learned. So anyway, so. I'm sorry, what's that, Steve? These are lessons learned. Yes, there's a number of them. So keeping that in mind, our suspects are now walk, start to walk down the street. Phillips has now pulled his 9mm Beretta and takes the weapon, puts it under his, he stops, puts the weapon under his chin, and presses one trigger. The round goes through his chin, through the head, and out through the top. He goes down like a ton of bricks, face down. Emil Matasereno is in a is in their car with four blown out tires because everybody is law enforcement wound up shooting about 500 rounds that day. So he is driving down the street trying to trying to carjack anything that he comes by. And the video that's out there shows him sideswiping one car, motioning on a car to come over. And then he starts going further down Archwood. Right about that same time, these three SWAT cops, myself is included, the three of us come around the front of the bank. And here's where my heart hits bottom a second time. First time was five to seven officers down. I slide over, and now we're going by the front of the bank. And we're going by a shooting scene. And there's shell casings everywhere. Spent drum magazines everywhere from the suspects. And police cars shot up. I want to at least try to put some cover on the bank in case we still have a suspect in there. I slide over to the, the side that's facing the bank as we bring our black and white around. I go to hit the, the window to bring the window down, and it comes down about six inches, four inches. That's it. I keep hitting it, and that's all of it to go. Well, never trust a guy who tries to tell you how big six inches is. So, All right. There you go. I'm down that rabbit <laughs> okay. hole again. Okay. Um, thank you <laughs> very much. Went. In all this seriousness, we still have to. Right. What, what, so what did you do? The child window? It was childproof. Oh, my oh. God. <laughs> the back of a police car childproof. Well, they, are, they obviously knew you SWAT officers were kids then, right? Yeah, really. Just big kids. Now, keep in mind, we're in a police car. We have no contact with Uniform patrol. We have no contact with department dispatch. We have no because idea. Because you're on your metro division radio, correct. which only is Remember, to them. You're not getting the citywide TAC uh, channels or anything. We're, we're, we're going by the seat of our pants on this. So we start to go down the street, and I look over, and I see somebody dressed in black, face down, obviously dead. Now, going through my mind now, is this a police officer? Because police officers... Are dressed in black, and we have police officers that are down out there. So again, this is running through my mind like this is one hell of a call up, um, to say the least. Now we're going like a bat out of hell down Archwood, and we see two vehicles parked further down, four blocks, five blocks down. 
one away from us with a trunk lit up, one facing us, which was an old, old Jeep pickup truck. As we get closer, we see there's something behind the, the window of the Jeep pickup truck because there's bullet holes all through the, the windshield of the pickup truck. As we get maybe a couple blocks, as we get about a block away, suspect gets out of the driver's side of the pickup truck, sees us, and shoots a number of rounds in our direction, not hitting us. And that's about the same time that we're now only about 100 feet away that all three of us kind of comically said, oh, shit, that's our suspect. Keeping in mind, that's not really who we were looking for. I mean, if we you came were on a rescue him, yeah. operation. Yeah, you well, were on we were a rescue operation. Downed right? officers. That's our primary responsibility at that point is downed officers. So now the training kicks in. Donnie driving. What Donnie does, he kicks the our police car at a 45-degree angle to the suspect. And by doing that, he gives us a safe side to get out on the driver's side for him and passenger side for myself and passenger driver's side for uh, Steve, who's in the front seat. It's, it's ambush training 101. I mean, that's, what you, that's how you park the car. So he stops the car as he is turning the car to stop it at a 45-degree angle. Steve, who is in the right front driver's side with his window down, in that video that I talk about, you can see him shooting at the suspect. While we're still driving, turning the car, he's shooting. He's putting rounds on the suspect. If he didn't do that, suspect could have walked right up on us, Emil Montesorano, and just killed all three of us. So that drives him to the back, actually what should be to the front of his car, on the opposite side. Steve gets out. Donnie is first one out. He goes to the back of the car. We both lay down, push our way out. Steve and I stand there. Steve decides to go to the front, and I wind up going to the back. We can't see the suspect. We hear him shooting at us. At this point, the suspect has changed from his AK-47 to a Bushmaster M15 with a Century mag, 100 rounds. It's a double drum mag. So now he is shooting at us, and I can't see him. I stand over the back of our car, and I'm, I know my rounds aren't going to go into through the engine block, because he's on the other side of his engine. But I figure if I can still put rounds at him, it's going to keep him down from coming over the top. And so he would shoot, and we would duck. I would come up, and we would shoot standing up. All three of us are standing up. And then what came, light came on in my head that if, if I can see his feet, I know where he's at, because I'm, I'm concerned that he's going to come around on us when we're ducking down behind our car, and he's just going to open up on all three of us. So I'm the first one that prones out. I prone out, and sure enough, at the front of his car, just beyond his, the front grill, I see somebody in big black Varney cross trainers crouched down in front of his, his car. And I was always taught that if that person is a threat then I'm going to shoot at any part of his exposed body that I can. Absolutely. So I can't my gun. I don't, because whenever, you know, we're shooting two, two, threes. 
And people say, well, did you skip rounds? You don't know where that round's going to go if you skip a round. So I can't my gun, I get a good sight picture, and um, I hit him twice in the ankle because then he drops down. As soon as he drops down, I yell over to uh, Steve and Donnie to prone out that I could see the suspect. They both prone out, and as long as he is still shooting at us, he's skipping rounds. It's kind of funny. At one point, I'm thinking myself, there's dirt falling from underneath the car. And I'm thinking to myself, I know I'm not shooting my own car. Well, what he was doing is he was, he was skipping rounds under the car, and they were hitting under the car, and they were hitting behind us. And so as long as he's shooting at us, we're going to shoot at him. We hit him 28 times until he stopped, uh, until he dropped the gun. Well, you were shooting at him, but you ran into a little bit of a problem because I want to tie back into it because you talked about when you put on your utilities, you put in some extra magazines. And when you went for those extra magazines, where were they? So while I'm shooting him, the one thing you never want to do is go to slide lock. That's where you're out of ammo in your gun. So I figure, okay, I'm going to do a tactical reload. I'll take the magazine out, save it in case I need it again, put a new magazine in. So I go down, and you should always have that magazine coming up first. So I go to do a rollover on my side. I'm prone out. We're still engaged. I go down to my pants pocket, and there, there's no magazines there. I thought, oh, shit. You know, what next? And I look over at the side of our, because I'm at the back of the police car. I look over where I came out of the car, and how ironic, all four magazines are just laying there on the ground outside of the police car. And this is what, this first shooting I was ever in, it's so surreal. I stand up. It's like everything's in slow motion. I stand up. I walk over to the, to the uh, magazines, bend down. I pick them up. I walk back over, put three in, do my magazine change. I gave one to Donnie because he needed a magazine. I prone back out, and I start shooting again. And, and even then, to show how, and this is where I guess where the training kicks in, Donnie says, damn, your gun's loud. To take a little bit, a minute away from what we're doing to notice that my, you know, the report from my weapon. At one point, Donnie has a malfunction. When he first got out and started shooting, Donnie had a malfunction. This is where the training, I can't stress it enough, this is where the training kicks in. I don't want to say that SWAT made us robots, but they made us into robots in that our training was paramount. All of a sudden, he has a malfunction. He says, I have a malfunction. I come around, the, this is before I proned out. I come around the back of the car, and I'm starting putting cover fire down while he clears his magazine. And then he says, I'm good, and I come back around to re-engage the suspect, and then that's when I proned out. But he had a malfunction, and the training kicks in. The training kicks in, getting the mags and putting the mags, doing a, doing a tactical reload while we're, while we're doing all of this. Well, you think, about the, you think about the bad guys when, you know, when the one guy's rifle uh, was shot and it was no longer functionable. You know, they've done their training as well. He's getting other weapons out of the trunk. He's pulling his, his Beretta out of a holster, engaging that way before he killed himself. But you, you're exactly right, man. You, you cannot overstress training and, and developing that muscle memory because that's what's going to keep you alive when it hits the fan. I tell guys all the time when, I, when I'm instructing that you might have one minute of 
when it's your turn to do something as far as training goes. You're up. I want you to do this, shoot this, move to that part, and, and take it serious because your training, what you do in training is what you're going to take into a real-life battle. It's that simple. It's muscle memory. This is what my muscles remember to do from the training. And, and that's what's going to happen. That's what they're going to, that's what you're, how you're going to come out of it alive. It's that old football saying is you play like you practice. If you practice like shit, you play like shit. But if you practice and you take it serious, like to your point, when the time comes, it's not that they turned you into robots. It's what they did is they, they actually created the instinct that your instincts kicked in, your training kicked in. Like you say, your muscle memory kicked in because the last thing you want to do is to have to think about it. Gee, what do I do now? It's like, no, everything kicks in your instincts. You know what to do. You know how to engage. And it's just like calling out the malfunction, going back to get your ammo. You didn't get nervous. You, you just didn't, you know, lock up from fear and go, ah, and let's talk about that real quick too, though, Rick. You also put a line in uh, some of the stuff I read uh, on the book that you're working on, but it's not that you guys were scared, right? Everybody gets scared with this. It's just working through the fear. I mean, you, you got you got to do, don't don't let anybody tell you that you go into a situation like that. Somebody goes, "I was calm as a cucumber." Bullshit. No, that's you're right. Yeah, more you're exactly right. If somebody were to say, uh, uh, "Were you was there a fear factor there?" You bet. Somebody's shooting at you. You bet. There's a fear factor. But what overcomes that fear factor is your training. And, and I think I even quoted, and I might have this wrong, but I think I even quoted Vince Lombardi, you bring up the football thing. It's, it's not perfect practice. It's, no, it does, it's not that perfect, no, the practice, practice doesn't perfect. make perfect. Perfect it's practice. Perfect practice makes perfect. Exactly. And you want to keep doing that. You want to ha- make sure that you, if you make mistakes, you correct them. And you don't make them again. And one of the things I learned from this shooting is that if you are issued a weapon, then that weapon on your vest, you should have magazines for that weapon. I would not have had to rely on the on the 223 mags I put in my pouch because my vest that I had on was set up for MP5. MP5 was my primary weapon. I had shotgun shells because I was a shotgunner. So where are my 223 rounds on my vest? They weren't there. And that's one of the things. If you're issued a weapon, make sure you have spare magazines available to you, not just in your pants pocket, but available to you on your tack vest that you can go to and get. You know, there's there's nothing that is is 100% perfect, but you have to try and get to that point. You know, years, years ago when... They, they, some agencies would let you carry personal weapons in lieu of a, of a, a department issued weapon and they would regulate what round, what weapons you could carry. But why would you not have your entire department carrying the same caliber weapon? So when you run into a situation like you just did, where your partner needs a magazine, you can provide him with that. You know, whereas if he's shooting a, if he's shooting a nine millimeter or 40 cal and you've got a 223, it's not going to work. Right. I mean, it just made no yeah, sense. No, it seems like common there's, sense. There's two rounds. There's 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 a couple of couple of thoughts on that. Um, I'm over at Burbank Airport now, and they issued uh, Glock twenty uh, twos, the um, the forty cal, and I put paperwork through, and it was accepted. And I show was able to show through sixteen pages of paperwork 
why we should be able to go to an alternate weapon of a 45, the Glock 21. And it was approved. And one of the questions came up, well, you were involved in North Hollywood shootout, and if you had to borrow weapons from uh, magazines from somebody else, how would that work? If we take a look at the number of shootings that occur, less than 1% of all shootings is a major shootout like this. I'm guessing. Whereas your stopping power, you want your stopping power to be uh, for right now, because most shootings happen within or over within five seconds to less than a minute. This, our shooting lasted two minutes. And if you stop and sit and look at a watch for two minutes, it's a long time, especially for a shooting, it's a long time. So the the thought process uh, is, you know, you want a you want a stopping power on a daily daily basis with a police officer. And this shooting, because because our rifles were two two threes, we might deploy two two threes. You want those. You want that ammo on you. You want to have it readily available to you, as opposed to uh, as opposed to just a. Uh, just the, um, the rifles or the MP5s that we were using at that time. So there's just the three of you now. You're proned out. You've got a couple shots now on target, you know, on the suspect. What happens after those first two rounds? You, you, uh, you're still proned out. You hit him a couple times. Walk us through now what brings this to a conclusion. So I hit him, I hit him twice. He comes down, and I tell the, uh, Donnie and Steve that I can see him. And they prone out. And like I say, that if, if the suspect is still aggressive, then we're going to be aggressive back at him. And so we continued to shoot until Steve at the front of our car could see, could see him and could tell when he dropped his gun. And so Emil drops his rifle and he puts his hands up. He's laying on the ground, but he puts his hands up. We stopped. We stopped right away. Steve and Donnie are going to approach him. I'm going to, now my biggest concern is two things. One, if we approach, is he going to get up and run around and try to get away from us? So I want to try and cut off his escape path. The other thing is I knew that uniformed patrol officers were bird dogging him down Archwood because I could hear the report from their weapons. You can still hear that pop, pop, pop of the 38s and the 9 millimeters. So I go around the backside, the opposite way that Donnie and Steve are going, and I come around the back, and I hold a clenched fist up to get them to stop firing. And the thing, and I guess I shouldn't be amazed, but in amazement, those guys were amazing. They, they just stopped. It's all around stopped firing. It's as if uh, we were all obviously all on the same sheet of music. And Donnie and Steve were able to approach him. I came running around. I kicked the rifle away from him. And uh, I come around the, between the two cars, and I open up the Jeep that he was trying to carjack. And there's an AK-47 on the, on the um, passenger side, on the, um, on the seat. I come back around. And I search him. I go underneath his vest, 
And that's when I realized he had body armor on that was ceramic plate. It was about a quarter inch thick. I pulled his ski mask off and made eye contact with him. And he just looked at me, and we were only about a foot away from each other, and because I bent down to pull the, the mask off. And he looked at me and he said, why don't you just put a bullet through my head? And I said, no, I want to see you in court. We're going to talk about something later, but in a way you do see him in court later, just not the way that you anticipated. Um, and that's going to be kind of a shock to everybody too. So at what point, but see, the thing is, because you, let's go back to that. You thought you had a third suspect. It's not over yet as far as you guys know, because you still think there's a third person out there, right? Correct. We thought there was a third person out there. There was a lot of radio traffic that there was a third person. So we had this one in custody. We knew about the suicide of Larry Phillips. So we had two down and we were wondering if there was a third. Unif uh, uniformed patrol officers and detectives came running over, took Emil into custody. He was still alive at that time. Cuffed him. We put out a request for paramedics. Paramedics came up to the perimeter, but didn't come into the perimeter because of the possibility of a third suspect. The three of us got back into our cars, topped our magazines off, and left. And it's kind of interesting when we were asked later about how many rounds did each one of us fire for the shooting team. And there's three ways of knowing how many rounds you fired. Nobody counts the rounds they fire when they're shooting. You know, one, two. You can also count the number of rounds from the shell casings that are on the ground or the number of rounds that you put in your mag. Well, we topped our mags off, not knowing how many we had fired, and we didn't count our rounds, so they look at the shell casings, but unknowns to us, the residents, because this is now in a residential area, they were coming out picking up shell casings as souvenirs. And so we now head back to the bank, the three of us, knowing that we have a short staff that day, and we blend in to the rescue uh, team that's going to make entry. And we got on the phone, called into the bank, had everybody come out. What happened was, is while they were in, suspects were in the bank, they asked the, uh, they ordered the tellers and the customers into the vault. So they come out. Now we make entry. We're searching. We're doing two things, searching for a second suspect and doing a rescue, basically clearing the bank. I come across uh, one of the tellers that was down behind the counter that didn't make it into the vault, and he got up and said that there was a third suspect and was very wobbly and collapsed in my arms, which is understandable, very understandable. And we got everybody out of the bank, and then we were deployed, the three of us were also deployed with the rest of our SWAT team that showed up, to, uh, to provide cover on uh, a house, a garage, where a suspect, third suspect had thought to uh, be hiding. Brought the, the armored car out that had the boom on it, took out half the, half the uh, garage wall. Turned out it wasn't there. And it was right about this time, our 
sergeants realized that we had been involved in a shooting, and we three of us put one suspect down. So they pulled us out and sequestered us. So is that armored vehicle with the boom? Is that the one that had have a nice day and a smiley face on the front yeah. of it? <laughs> yeah, and the first dri- the first driver of that was none other than. Daryl Gates. Daryl Gates. Yeah, <laughs> there Gates. you go. So, what was what hey. was the purpose of sequestering you three when you're still looking for a potential third suspect? You need all bodies on deck right then. In any police shooting, law enforcement shooting, they what they like to do is they like to take the police officer out of the element, sequester him, so they can interview him. So that's what they when they finally realized the three of us had been involved in the shooting, they pulled us out and they said, "Hey." You guys are now out of out of the picture. But you're still... And it took... But you were still actively looking for ahead. a potential third suspect, right? Not us, not the three of us. Okay, okay, I we got you. We were, because they didn't know. If they knew ahead of time that we were involved in it, we would have never gone back to the bank to make entry. Right, okay. So FBI, L.A. County Sheriffs, um, LAPD, uh, uh whole variety of law enforcement officers did a block to block about one square mile if not more door to door house to house backyard to backyard search of a suspect when it was finally determined that uh, there was no second third suspect wow so i got to go back to the logic of that for a minute because if that was the case you would have taken how many officers off the street the minute that they pulled the trigger or involved in the shooting i mean i'm sorry not trying to knock on an agency, but it's like that. It, I'm with Steve. Like it doesn't make any sense. You still got an active, fluid investigation, and yet their first concern is three of the most highly trained people out there on the scene. They want to pull you out and leave patrol officers with lesser uh, firepower and other weapons out there. I don't get well, it. Well, we we they brought in they brought in L.A. office uh, FBI SWAT. They brought in SEB, which is the L.A. County Sheriff's SWAT team along with uh, they started calling all of our SWAT team in. Uh, so it was, a, it was mainly a SWAT search from door to door and house to house. So it wasn't uniformed police officers, uh, let's get these guys with uh, 38s out there. So it was all SWAT officers just from different agencies. The thinking is that they don't want the officer that was just involved in a police shooting to be interviewed by other people to uh, have other people talking to him and might change his story or what has actually happened in the shooting. Uh, They don't want any outside influence. They want to get it right away. They want to get the information, they being shooting team, investigators, robbery homicide, they want to get that right away when it's fresh in your mind as to what happened. So they've got two concurrent investigations with you going on, right? One is an internal, the shooting review team, and then RHD sounds like, are they looking at it from a criminal standpoint, or is this all just one investigation with multiple people involved? Well, it's just one investigation. Robbery Homicide's the one that runs it. They're, they head it up. We don't do the investigation. We just do what we have to do. And then, I mean, obviously our supervisors are going to be in on the, the investigation as far as our activity goes. Uh, there is a shooting team that comes out, and the shooting team investigates all law enforcement shootings. So now you have a shooting team that's going to uh, come out. That's just one of the specialized units that is within robbery homicide that's going to be separate. Can you imagine <laughs> being in charge of processing that crime scene? 
with all those rounds. Well, listen, let, let me tell you something. Um, I've got one better for you, and I don't know if this is actually, if everybody knows about it or not, but I'll be glad to tell you. They were investigating three crime scenes. The one in front of the bank is a crime scene. That's a shooting. Four, four crime scenes. The one in front of the bank that's a crime scene. The one in the parking lot that's a crime scene. The one down the street where we were involved is a crime scene. And one up the street at Van Owen, further north, at Van Owen and Laurel Canyon. And you think to yourself, well, that's blocks away. What's, what's that? Patrol, and when they set up the perimeter, when this whole thing first started, they're on the perimeter, they're waiting for these guys to give up. Now they hear all the shooting, shooting, and shooting. Car leaving that scene at a high rate of speed, coming right at them, they open up on that car. Oh. Oh. It just happened to be a citizen that was trying to get out of the area. Oh. Now they got some type of a settlement, I imagine, and a brand new car out of it, just like the guy got a brand new garage out of it. But, um, you know, the, in defense See, the of the garage officers, is understandable. I mean, but yeah, I guess, you know, but it's one of those things, man, you're out there. I don't want to second guess anybody. It's like somebody's coming at you. You've got all of this firing going on and it's that's like. That's exactly right. And, and he's coming at you with a car. Now, now, can the car be used as a weapon to get away? Oh, damn yeah, skippy. Sure. Yeah, you bet. So they're doing what they are pretty much trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? And uh, nobody was hurting that. So that's, you know, knock on wood that that's that that worked out well. It's similar to that case where we just had Alex Collins on there from uh, the Big Bear shooting in which the protection detail when when uh, Dorner you know, put out his manifesto, who's going to kill a couple of maids came along in a car and they couldn't tell who it was at nighttime. All they saw was headlights shining at him coming directly and they lit him up, you know, with gunfire. And, and I think they're independently wealthy now. But you know what? But people like to be like to your point, you know, you've got a week to uh, you've got a week or two weeks to sit back and dissect something that somebody had to make a split second decision on. And um, that's always tough. Let me go back and ask you, though, I would have given here's the answer I would have give. If they said, do you know how many rounds you fired? I would have simply asked, what is a shit ton, Alex? Because I got <laughs> no fucking clue. Well, we, you know, in, what in is a shit ton? In figuring, we kind of guessed that each one of us fired maybe 15 rounds. Between the three of us, 45 rounds total. That's, uh, but, uh, okay, uh, I'm not going to say that's not a lot, but considering... Ma maybe 20. Yeah, but considering what you guys were going through, that doesn't sound like a lot, considering how no, much not. lead these guys were throwing down. It's not. It really isn't. We had uh, 30 round mags. I probably went through uh, part of a mag and then uh, did a reload. Um, Oh, you only did a reload after you went back and found your other four mags, which fell out of yeah. your pants as you were crawling. <laughs> well, you know, and doing the research for today's interview, I read one article. It estimated there were as many as 550 police officers out there. Does that sound legitimate? Correct. 32, 550 police officers, 32 uh, officers fired their guns. That's all. I thought it would be a lot more than that out of 550. Well, you know what? They're in a position to where they're they're on a side street or something and um and they don't have a shot yeah you know we're talking about the police officers that fired uh their guns had a shot at the suspect or felt felt like they had a shot at the suspect suspects had uh three ak-47s they had a bushmaster uh ar-15 
double drum mag. They had a HK-91 sniper rifle. 90, uh, had a 9mm Beretta semi-automatic handgun. They had over 2,000 rounds of ammo. 32 police officers fired about 550 rounds. 32 officers, 550 rounds. And the three of us, we figured we fired maybe about 40, 48 rounds, 50 rounds. Yeah, but but Rick, there's another metric here you haven't talked about, and that's when you finally, when things slowed down, you finally took a look at your pager. And how many pages did you have? I had about 20-some for my daughter. My daughter, who at the time was 20 years old, and she and I, like I said, we're, we're best buddies and always have been. And to this day, um, and I probably to this day, I still call her three, four times a day just to say, hi, what's going on? At that time of the shooting, there were no cell phones. And you think, thinking back 25 years ago, you had your pagers, and that was just about it. So I would tell her, if you ever need me, just to page me. And she would, and I'd get to a phone, and I'd call her. Well, she, I had 20-some, after this was all over, I looked, and I had 20-some uh, pages from her. And she knew. She's watching this on TV. It's probably the widest shootout ever recorded in the history of law enforcement. It's recorded from just about start to finish by, I think, eight, eight news helicopters. And it's still all over YouTube. That's I can't tell you how many videos I watched getting ready for today's interview. And and one of the, the you're talking about you three guys come screaming up in that slick top black and white. You guys came screaming in there. You didn't come up timidly. I mean, it, it was pretty cool watching you guys scream up the no, street there. You got to be aggressive. Well, it's like, you know what, Steve, that's like one of the interviews uh, we, we were told. We were kind of cued. They said the shooting team's going to ask you why when you realize that was the suspects, why didn't you back out? And at that time, we don't train to back out. No. I don't want to sound, you know, we don't train to back out. We're in it, and we're in it until until it's over. Right. One way or the other, we're in it till it's over. That's it. That's right. Um, there was a bike, bike unit, I think, that was out there that uh, broadcasted have the black and white have the black and white that's approaching that vehicle, have them back out, or that's at that, because that's the suspects. And the air unit came back and said, they can't back out. That's Metro. They're engaging the suspect. Wow. And, yeah, if, and if not you, then exactly. who? I mean, if, if you can't engage them, who else is left? Well, the, you know, and, and Morgan, I had a police officer, a sergeant, the uniformed patrol sergeant, came up to me afterwards and said, hey, I think I'm going to be in trouble. I said, why is that? And he said, because their lieutenant, the watch commander lieutenant at North Hollywood, put out to back off, let the suspects go, we'll catch them another day. Oh, my gosh. And he gosh. said, uniform, and uniform patrol officers, uniform patrol officers still bird dog under his command. He goes, we're going to get him. And that's the bird dog. Those are the officers that bird dog him all the way down, all the way down uh, uh, Archwood. Because I didn't want to get in trouble because we were given an order to back out. Uh, well, I, you know, I would have said, what order? My radio didn't work. I mean, it, shit, it got shot up. Look, who knew? And I said, bullshit. I said, I said, bullshit. That's, and, and you know, and, and I don't want to sound, whenever I, I give this debrief and I do teach active shooters still to this day, I teach active shooter 
And I tell people, if you, when you pin that badge on, if you're not willing to be act proactive in these types of situations, then don't pin that badge on. Right. Because you have no business being in that, this business. And, and again, I don't want to sound goofy or macho. I'm definitely not that. Heck, everybody thinks I don't fit the mold of a SWAT cop. No, that's what we do. That's what we train to do. Right. We don't train to back off and let the, and let the public get shot up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, if anybody's going to be in trouble, it should have been the damn lieutenant for not taking on responsibility of his position and responding appropriately. Well, it's what we used to call a REMF, an REMF, a rear echelon motherfucker that can sit in a desk or somewhere and give orders. It's like, get your ass out here on the street. See how, you know what? It would have been different had they, had they um, not seen it or the alarm came out. You guys could have maybe put your plan and say, hey, we got an air unit up. We can see these guys. We're going to follow them after they left the bank. But the minute they start firing rounds, if they're going to shoot at cops, they're going to shoot at civilians. And that's the other thing, too, I was going to, out of your research, too, I just want to give everybody an idea, too. Um, the, like you say, the suspects fired a total of 1,100 rounds. The injury information, nine police officers were shot. Nobody killed. Two police officers were injured in a traffic collision while responding to the bank. Three civilians were shot uh, and four civilians were injured. The fact that you've got nine police officers, three civilians, you know, basically uh, 16 people, 17, 18 people uh, who were injured as a result. Nobody died except the bad guys. I mean... It, that that defies not not just all odds. It just defies belief. It's like, how could you have a thousand, you know, eleven hundred rounds being shot, armored piercing rounds, and nobody dies? Uh, to me, that is one of the biggest. Um, just I don't want to say mysteries, but that's one of the most unexplainable things, you know, out of this whole thing. And it's just a testament to your guys's training, the way that you did stuff. And I give you guys just huge kudos for the fact is that you operated professionally. Nobody's running away. Everybody's engaging, but you're you're doing your job of boxing these people in until the cavalry gets there. And you guys that day, my friend, were the cavalry. Well, you know, thank you. The hardest thing for me to take to this day, and the three of us talked about it there, and even to this day, people say, "Gosh, you're you're a hero. You're a hero." I'm not a hero. Trust me, I'm not, I'm no hero. That was just three well-trained officers that wound up being getting involved and knowing what to do. And, and that's it. We're well-trained, and we were put in a position to where, and I would say a fortunate position, to be able to stop what was going on. Because had he got into that Jeep, who knows what he would have done? You know, who knows wh how many other people he would have shot up, and that Jeep... I mean, that thing could have probably taken a beating and still kept running as, you know, composed to that little, uh, whatever they had, a Chevy or a Pontiac they had. You know, and to the driver of the Jeep, what he did, everybody says, well, he took the keys. And he didn't take the keys. He left the keys. What happened was that Jeep, it's a 1943 Jeep um, pickup truck, and he had had a kill switch on the fuel pump. All he did was flick the switch, kill the, kill the fuel pump. So that's why nice. Neil was having a hard time drive off in it. And, and we wind up driving up on him. Yeah. So on a scale of one to 10, uh, a pucker factor, you know, 10 being the most extreme when you pulled up and you, then all of a sudden you realized it's him. Where was your pucker factor at in that instant? You know what? Now that you say it, I have to look back and it's, it's maybe, maybe a second, maybe two seconds. You think, oh shit. 
But then your training kicks in. You don't stop thinking about, your training has to be so intense that you don't stop and say, oh shit, what do I do next? You've got to have, okay, I do this. Donnie says I have a malfunction. Training, I come up over the top of him and I provide cover fire now. Even though I can't see the suspect, I'm still shooting in the direction where the suspect is because that's the way we train. And, and now all of a sudden, I'm proned out and I can see my suspect. I shoot him. I have to do a mag change. I go down to where I remember I put my mags and they're not there. I don't panic. I look over. Oh, crap. They're on the ground. I get up. I walk over, pick them up, come back, do a mag change, and I re-engage. That's the way we train. And that's what you have to have jump in to your mind when you're thrown into something like this. Because that's what's going to save you. Right. You know, the thing, the thing that worked in our line of work is training that saves lives. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. You're right. You know, it's the communications, the discipline, uh, being aggressive. Uh, that's what saved our lives. Because he had an opportunity several times to shoot us. He had an opportunity when we first drove up, but Steve turned his car on an angle. I mean, uh, Donnie turned the car on an angle. Mm -hmm. Steve shot out through the passenger side of the window. Otherwise, he could have come up and shot all three of us while we were still in the car. I was able to prone out and see the suspect and take him out to try and end this thing. And you mentioned something earlier, Rick. I don't want people to gloss past it. In all of your years of being on SWAT prior to North Hollywood shootout, how many times had you been involved in a firefight on SWAT? I'd been shot at a number of times. I can remember one, we had a suspect. I was pretty much close to the front of a house. Suspect was firing out of his house over our heads. But that was the first time I ever had to shoot. So the first time I've ever had to use my weapon in, a, um, in any manner other than on a range in my 35 years I was with LAPD. Wow. So with, with that in North Hollywood, two times that you actually pulled your trigger? But you know what? No, but let's back up. You take a look at our training. We'll go back to the training again. We do live fire training from day one. And we shoot, we shoot oh, out of a four-week month, 28 days, we're shooting for, for four or five straight days. And we're shooting in a house, we're, uh, not a, a shoot house to where we have targets up. And that's live fire shooting, shooting all around us. It's not just table topping, what do you do now? So we're, we're shooting all the time where live rounds are going off all around us. Now all of a sudden, we take that training live rounds from a range and let's put that out in the street. It's still live rounds. And there's our suspect. And uh, granted, he's not a paper target. but we And we do major training scenarios with the military once a year, in which we don't have paper targets, but now we're using mannequins that are dressed up like suspects. So we have three-dimensional targets. You're bringing as much reality into the situation as you can, and, and you know As what? much as we can. And going in that live shoot house, it, it, it compresses the sonic boom that comes out every time you pull that trigger, and it'll bounce off the walls and come back and hit you in the face, that little, that little compression. And because... Because you've already experienced that in a training scenario, it doesn't surprise you when it hit, happens to you in real life. No, and, and you're exactly right, because you can go ahead and practice reloads while sitting watching your television. Do a reload, do a reload, kick one out, speed reload, tack reload. It's not the same. It's not the same unless you're on the range, shooting ammo, running through a house, 
even just a fixed line on an on a range heart and rate shooting. up breathing up clothing exactly you know, conditions and just everything. like you said steve you have the concussion of the weapon going off the concussion of the weapons going off around you a little bit of stress put into it because they are live rounds going all around you you know, I was, I was, uh, and this isn't compared to what you did, but as a firearms instructor with the DEA, I would take guys and I would have them sit cross-legged on the ground with their weapon out shooting at a target, and I'd have somebody stand over top of them and shoot at the same target because they could feel that compression come down. Sure. And then sure. after we got through qualifications, you know, you want to try to create as much anxiety and stress on them as you can to go into shooting, you know, multiple target shooting situations, I'd have them drive down a range in High Point, North Carolina, about a thousand, well, about a hundred yard range with the siren on, you'd have your good time radio on, the lights are flashing, make as much noise and distraction as you can and come screaming up into the targets and then have to shoot from inside the vehicle, engage multiple targets. And the stress factor, <laughs> every one of them are like, oh my God. I have to send you guys... No, I'll send you guys a video. I just came up with training. We had out here a shooting in which a couple of L.A. County sheriffs were at a train platform late at night, and suspect came up on them while they were sitting in the, and shot him. At that same time, while that was happening, I was teaching our officers at the airport, while you're sitting, I want you to look out your, the driver's window. You're going to draw your weapon. And they have to do it twice, once with a seatbelt and once without. Yep. Draw your weapon, come around, identify the threat, and fire two rounds in the appropriate area. Yep. Two rounds center body. And then reholster. And and all of my all of my training, because I'm the instructor at, at Burbank, all of my training is geared for not a square range. I'm it's everything I do is running and gunning. Yep. It's the real I world. Up, I put up targets and I stress. I stress that you have to look at the threat. Don't look at the same clothing that this guy has or that guy has. You've got to look at the threat and see what the threat is. That's right. That's right. And, the, and you know, it's funny you mentioned the seatbelt because in those scenarios I just mentioned, when they're driving down the range, only a couple guys thought to unleash their seatbelts. Every one of them threw that door open and then strangled themselves trying to get out of the car. That's right. That's right. <laughs> or buddy. tried to roll down their rear window and found it was a childproof window. <laughs> <laughs> And have a heart attack for the third time in one day. Oh, geez. Yeah, that's a good thing. Hey, the reason I was asking some of those other things is I wanted to stress to folks, too, is that everybody thinks that when you're on SWAT that you're getting in a shooting every single day or that you're shooting stuff yeah. up. What I wanted people to understand is that while shootings are rare, you know, in your line of work, it's the training – Shooting was not rare. Getting into officer-involved shootings is rare, but actually shooting all the time is not rare. And like you say, you run thousands of rounds through that, so when the time comes... You know the biggest thing that used to shock people, too? How many times do you see people go to the range and everybody does the proper safety things, got the glasses on, got the earmuffs on? The first time they ever hear actually a gun go off, a weapon go off without ear protection on, scares the shit they out duck. of them. They go, and to your point, like Bart said, I didn't realize it was that loud. Yeah. Well, when's the last time you tried, when's the last time you did training with live rounds with no ear protection on and the, and the muzzle is, you know, five feet away from the front of your oh, head? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's uh, God bless you guys, man. Well, that no, was you're, a, you're right. I love this. This is great. What I try to, the training I try to bring into the airport is the same training that I received for 25 years in SWAT. And, and that is shooting four or five days a week or and try to make it as real life as possible. You can have somebody on the square range that's a marksman, and that's great. 
I love it. But I would rather have the person that is put through a stress course, a uh, live situation that I'm going to rely on because that's where, that's where the real training comes in is when they, they're put in that stressful situation. Yeah, it's not a laboratory environment. Everything's sterile and set up, you know, and I can pick and choose what I want to do. So, uh, and I'll tell you too, it was instructive. The first time I realized the value of that, crawling through the mud at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and our drill instructors are flying M60s over our head with tracer rounds. And it's like, it's unreal because you don't have any ear protection in. And it's like, that's yeah. what those things sound like. It's like, cool. Hey, let's do this. Um, We've kind of we've kind of gone through that, but I, I want to walk back in time for a minute because this is one of those oh shit things. This goes back to the oh shit thing, and we talked about when they started doing their armored car robberies. Well, um, now that we know who these guys are and we start doing some history on them, what we find out is that Montesorano is actually pretty smart. He's a he's a brilliant guy. Graduated DeVry at nineteen, did computer programming, video game programming. But the one that was a little dodgy, Phillips, and when you look at his history and his dad had mental illness, escaped from the Colorado State Hospital, Phillips started, you know, basically the way they met, these guys started doing bodybuilding, hooked in together. But Phillips started running a real estate scam in Colorado in 92, right, Rick? Oh, yeah. He, this guy was, this guy was, you want to say brilliant, you could say brilliant, but he was a career criminal. What he would do was he would find a house that was for sale. He would then take and get a hold of the realtor to, for a showing. He would like to see this house for sale. He would look over the realtor's shoulder and memorize the combination of the lockbox on the door that has the key in it for the front door. He would look at the house. He said he'd let them know, and off they go. He would then advertise that same house that was for sale as a rental. And he would say that he is the realtor and he is going to rent this house and he would take and he did this several times and that he would uh take you show him the house he would open the lockbox show the house to these poor unsuspecting people and he would rent them he would ask for either cash or a check made out to him and for first and last month's rent just happened that one day two separate families showed up at the same house thinking they were renting it and and they run into each other with this saying they had the same real estate agent the um guy the uh law enforcement agency that uh, did the investigation they set up a sting they caught him they uh filed on him for uh felony fraud and uh oh uh grand theft and he pled guilty to it. When he was going for his sentencing hearing, he skipped town, came to L.A. They issued a bench warrant for his arrest, never to be seen again until North Hollywood. Yeah, well, but that wasn't the end of it because this, this is the oh shit moment. That's why I didn't want to say it at the beginning because I think it has more impact afterwards. This was not the first time law enforcement had contact with no. uh, Phillips and Montesorano. <laughs> no, you're right. So, um, and I'm talking about in LA. So right after the, uh, uh, armored car robbery in Denver, walk us through the incident in Glendale, California. October 93. 
Yeah. And, and this is this is the part to where, as we set the stage for this, as Rick tells you, this is one of the reasons why law enforcement had to get serious about information sharing, about sharing intelligence, about making sure that we're all on the same sheet of music, whether it's information, communications, operations, you know, the way we respond to things. But Rick, this is when you told me this at first, it's kind of like, you got how much of this could have been solved except for, but, you know, we can't go back. You know, my favorite saying is what if, what if, what if worms had machine guns, birds wouldn't fuck with them? Well, we can say, what if they had just done this? Well, let's walk through the October 93 Glendale stop. Well, that was the, that was the one, that was the one aw shit moment. And then the other one came after our shooting, uh, about a year after our shooting. And you, you know what that one is. Yeah, we're going to get into that one. So let's do this one first, and then we're going to do the other one. October of 93, there was a sergeant uh, out of uh, Glendale. Glendale is a little city of its own that is surrounded by the city of Los Angeles. But it's a city just like Burbank is that's uh, next to each other. And what happens is, is the sergeant, he's working a specialized, he's sergeant in charge of a specialized unit, and he is driving a plain police car. He is in plain clothes, and he has a raid jacket on, and he is in charge of a special problems unit with Glendale PD. He sees a four-door Chevy exiting a gas station at a high rate of speed. Two suspects in the car, driver and passenger. He doesn't want them to stop. He doesn't want them to get on the freeway, so he conducts a stop before they get on the freeway. And as he conducts the stop, pulls them over, he can see both of the suspects talking back and forth to each other. And this is before the bank robberies. This is before anybody knew who Phillips and Montesorano were. And so he can see that Phillips was the driver, Montesorano was a passenger. He sees him talking back and forth and pulls him over. As he gets out of his police car, instead of walking up on the car, he does something that probably saved his life. And what he does is he walks to the back of his car. This is at, this is at night. Walks to the back of his car, has his flashlight with him, turned off, walks all around, way around to the side of their car, takes up a position of cover, and then he lights up the passenger side of the car. Now, right away, they're looking over their left, trying to see where the driver is. Well, little did they know that he was the driver. So he lights him up. He orders the driver uh, out of the car, which is Larry Phillips, walks him around, see your hands, puts his hands behind his head, does a cursory search of him. Uh, his waistband, he says, do you have any weapons on you? And he says, no. He puts... Phillips in between Montesorano, who is still seated as the passenger, and himself. So, does a cursory search, finds a gun in his waistband, pushes him away as he takes that gun out, takes his own gun out, and the backup that he had earlier requested gets there, and they take both suspects into custody. Hey, Rick, let's, let, let me ask you a question there. You know, this is this is pure just conjecture, but knowing what you know about Phillips and Montesorano and what they did later... Had he not done that, had he approached like normal or had he just done a, like a normal traffic stop, do you think those two would have engaged him? They would have killed him. There's no doubt in my mind. They would have killed him. Um, as a matter of fact, I think they had made a comment about that. But they, yeah, they were going to kill him. 
He was the only, if, if he would have come up, he's the only one out there, nobody else around, what do they lose? You got to keep in mind, also, you know, these aren't a couple of guys that are exiting a parking lot that, uh, that are, they're just stopping because they made an illegal right turn or left turn. When they searched the car, they wound up coming up with two Glock 40 cal semi-automatic handguns, two Colt 45 semi-automatic handguns, two AK-47 rifles, over a thousand rounds of ammunition, several fully loaded drum magazines for the AK-47s, a police scanner, a brown, a brown bag that was full of money, and fake ID and fake beards. So... Just another day at the office. <laughs> yeah, so now it's like... Wait a minute! You've got a, a lone police officer walking up on them, and they've got all this stuff. No, they they got caught because of the tactics that Ian used, the sergeant that he used, that saved his life. Mm -hmm. and, and let me tell you how valuable that is. I, that's something I learned too when I was out by myself as a trooper. Sometimes I'd be the only guy out for two or three counties. I learned even a, a, an extra trick on top of that. I was taught by some guys. I would get out the driver's door and close it, but you'd have the spotlight in their mirror. Then you walk around the back, but I'd also open up the passenger door and close it so they would hear a second door, you know, and oh, then walk up on. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, so it makes them really think that they're stupid. But you know, to your point, where do most people look? They look over their left because they think all cops are going to walk up on the driver's right. side. That's exactly what they did. And you know what? Um, real quick divergent story, but that, that, I don't know if that saved my life, but it saved me from probably getting shot because I'd stopped a Camaro like that one night, late at night, two people in the vehicle. I walked up on the passenger side, and when I did, in the floorboard was a sawed-off 410 shotgun. The guy gets yeah. out and runs. I grab the girl. This guy's wanted for a bunch of robberies out of Texas. We find him the next day, but he had just been paroled for bank robbery out of Texas, was up robbing his way up through Texas and Oklahoma, and he had a sawed-off 410, and had I not walked up on the passenger side, I would have walked up directly in front of a 410. And your tactics is what saved your life. Um, when I first went to Metro, the first car that we stopped, I started, I was a passenger, and I started to walk up on it. My partner stopped me right away, the driver, and he looked at me, he goes, what are you doing? And because that's what we did for the first 10 years of my career, you walk up on a car. And he says, we don't walk up on cars. He goes, you ask him to get out. And that's what I teach now. I ask the driver to get out and walk back towards me because I still have, at least I still have the door of my car as cover. And I can always back up to the back of my car if I have to. When I walk up on a car, I try to explain this to other cops. If I walk up on a car, I've got nothing. I'm out there. I've got nothing at all. So I don't care if it's a traffic stop. Sir, come on, get out of the car. I just want to talk to you. Let's walk over to the sidewalk. Don't put your hands in your pocket. I don't know who you are. Walk up on the sidewalk. Let's have a little quick conversation. I'll Absolutely. tell you why I'm stopping. Watch the hands. Watch the yep. hands. Well, let's, hands let's are what's going to get you in trouble. Yeah, that you can, I mean, look, a couple of times with my wife and her eyeballs, I thought I was going to die from that, but uh, <laughs> it's definitely the hands. Let's talk about, though, what, what happened out of this, because what happened out of this is they seize all of this. They charge them with conspiracy to commit bank robbery, all this other stuff. But here's the kicker part, Rick. Tell well, us they, that. They, they charge them because they couldn't put the two suspects with a bank robbery or any kind of a robbery. They check with the, the gas station. They didn't rob the gas station. They're only looking within their own city, Glendale. They didn't get a hold of of Los Angeles because they did have in Los Angeles, keep in mind, they did have a couple of armored car robberies. 
but they didn't get in contact with them. So within their own city of Glendale, and it's a great city, within their own city of Glendale, they didn't do any uh, communications outside of that city. They had nothing other than conspiracy. What they booked them on was conspiracy to commit robbery. And when they went to court, they wound up doing a plea bargain for, they got 30 days each, total of 90 days, 30 days, one month each, and they went and served that. When they got out of jail, after they got out of jail, they both served three months, they got their attorney who petitioned a the court and the judge to get all of their stuff back so that they could sell it and pay the attorneys. Judge said, not a problem, and wound up issuing all of their equipment back. All of the, uh, the two AK-47s, the ammo, the 45s, the uh, everything that they had with them, they wound up giving back to uh, the suspects, which were then later used in the bank robberies, later used in our, in our shootout. Uh, shootout. That's what I'm getting at. Those AK-47, those weapons, almost all of those things ended up showing up in North Hollywood on February yes. 28th. Yes. See, that's what I mean. That's that oh shit moment. It's kind of like they handed them back the tools that they used to, I mean, just not only commit the f f future robberies, but that day there could have been a lot of people dead. Uh, Unbelievable. See, and that was the challenge. Uh, yeah, I just... Yeah, you know, I get it that back in those days, that's back before. You really wouldn't think that a court would do that. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's insane. You, you were talking AK-47 assault rifles. Well, especially with the disguises and the beards and the fake IDs. But see, here's the thing, Morgan, is that they weren't fully automatic. So therefore, there was no weapons violation as far as them being fully automatic, therefore they could give them back to them. They didn't turn them into being fully automatic until they got into the bank robberies. When they got in the bank robberies, then they became fully automatic. These same two suspects, they were stopped at a gun range up in, oh, uh, at a gun range up in Azusa, which is another city outside of Los Angeles. They were stopped there by uh, US Forestry Service. The guns were confiscated and returned to them when they realized that the guns were not fully automatic. Same two suspects shooting target practice at a gun range with AK-47s. Unbelievable. You'd think, you know, you'd think the court would look at the totality of the circumstances with money in the car and a brown paper bag, which is not common, the fake beards. Who carries a thousand rounds of ammo with them? I mean, even when you go to the range, it's rare that you're going to take a thousand rounds of ammo. It's ridiculous. Yeah, Steve. You know, when you stop and think about it, though, it's to add to that. We have the money in a brown bag, like you said, but now we're putting police scanners with with the extra ammo with the assault rifles, and they have a police scanner. It's got to tell you something's going on. But see, and, and Glendale, to, to Glendale, but to Glendale's credit, they, to Glendale's credit, they couldn't find anything within their city. To their downfall is they didn't look outside of their city. Right. Yeah. So now they're look, they didn't look outside of their city. They do their three months apiece, 90 days apiece, and when they get out, they want to pay their bill, supposedly, and yeah. right. they wind up... Uh, getting all their stuff back. You know, and there's provisions in the law. You can, act, I mean, 
a screwdriver is a screwdriver unless it's an instrumentality of a crime and I used it to break into stuff. Then you can forfeit that screwdriver. You know, the same thing with the weapons. But I digress, as a famous ESPN broadcaster says. What I want to get to, though, so Rick, I said earlier, I said this was not going to be the last time you were going to deal with Montesorano. He, he's room temperature now. You won't deal with him personally. But now you got to deal with his family because they want another bite at the apple. And they want to do something that when I read about it and when I looked at it, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. Well, and, and you're right. Uh, one year later, Modest Reynolds' family files a lawsuit. And the lawsuit lists myself, the other two officers, actually Daryl Gates, along with a couple of uh, detectives and a couple of uh, paramedics. Why do they list Daryl Gates? He's not chief at that time. No, but they would go through everybody. Daryl Gates is actually the first one on it. Daryl Gates, Willie Williams, City of Los Angeles, Bernard Parks, and then he lists the uh, Rick Massa and then the uh, the other the other officers. And we are the defendants. We are defendants now, and we are now being tried for wrongful death. You are summoned. You are hereby summoned and required to file within the city courts upon and the the attorney that they got was uh was steve yagman um who's a big anti-police advocate but in the in the body of the of the uh, subpoena it says that and i'll quote it these officers refuse to provide and or to permit the provision of first aid and or medical attention thereby cold-bloodedly murdering the decedent. These defendants created the dangerous health situation that caused the decedent's death. What was that, lead poisoning? I'm ready to throw up. You caused the situation? We caused oh. the situation, and uh, we caused the dangerous uh, health um, situation that caused his death. I'm surprised they didn't have that lieutenant that told everybody to go home and call it a day as their primary star witness. <laughs> I just the crap like this makes you want to throw well, up. Well, what they did is they actually what they did was they got they got in a a retired they got a retired doctor from from UCLA who didn't even look at the autopsy reports, and he says in a in an article. He says in the article, there's no question in my mind that had he received timely medical care that he would have survived. I see no reason why a guy would die from these wounds. As a matter of fact, I think even timely first aid as opposed to trauma care could have saved his life. And so they went with that. I debriefed this to the county uh, a coroner's California or West Coast Coroner's Convention. And I had L.A. County coroner come up to me, and he told me, he said, Rick, I could have had Emil Montesorano on my table at the time that last round hit him. And because of the amount of devastation that the 223 rounds did, 28 of them, that we could not have saved him. He died from uh, trauma caused from 28 rounds of uh, 223. They had one round that he had bruising on his chest from uh, a round that hit him in the uh, 
the uh, trauma plate, didn't penetrate, and he had multiple rounds in his, uh, in his hip, his buttocks, his ankle that I created, and his, uh, his forearm. And we stood trial, and even though the coroner said that you couldn't have saved him, we stood trial for wrongful death, and jury came back hung jury. Hung jury. <laughs> Wasn't it a nine to three split in favor of acquittal, though? Only three Correct. were voting to convict? Correct. They were going to retry it, retry us, and the judge then decided to throw it out because it was ridiculous, and there was no monetary settlement to, uh, to the family. The only agreement was that the three of us, those that were sued, would not countersue. And that was never, never part of our idea. Well, what, 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 would you have, what would you have gotten if you sued? I mean, obviously at this point, no assets, no nothing. I mean, would have been an exercise in futility even if you wanted to sue. Yeah, no, that's true. You know, one of the things that sticks out, you bring that up, one of the things that sticks out also sticks out in my mind that has never been resolved was you have guns, you have guns, Morgan. A lot of people out there listening. I got a shit ton of guns and a shit ton it. of ammo. <laughs> and you buy, and, and that's my point. You buy ammo, you buy ammo for those guns, right? But do you ever buy, does anybody ever buy ammo for a gun they don't have? Would you go out and buy ammo for a gun you don't have? Uh, not today. Well, in, the days that the, in the days that followed the shootout, detectives conducted uh, searches. They got warrants and they conducted some search, searches, search warrants. And in one of the houses, they found two ammo cases, military ammo cases, with 50 cal ammo in them. Whoa. And they never found the 50 cal. Whoa. They found the ammo. They never found the 50 cal. They only found, they only found $500,000 of the money. There's a million dollars still outstanding. They have no idea where it went. See, and that's game overtime. Um, one of my friends, um, uh, and actually one of my friends was on the Waco Police Department during the Branch Davidian raid, and that's, that's what killed the ATF agents were 50 caliber weapons. Because yep. that's going to go through ceramic plate. That's gonna, you, you can put all the body armor you, armor on you want, unless you're driving an M1 Abrams tank. That well, thing's going to say that's what they that's what they try to use to bring bring tanks down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fifty cals. Unbelievable. Was there now? Let's let's play that out a little bit too, because a lot of people are going to wonder: Did these guys have any prior military training? Were they a member of an organized group? I mean, I know at the house at the house they had heat, you know, and a couple other you know movies. You're you're thinking you're thinking like I do, because that was one of the first questions when I was being interviewed. I asked the detectives to find out two things: one, were they under any um, or any drugs or narcotics, and number two, was there any prior military experience? And the answer to that, both those questions were no. They had a phenobarbital in them. What they would do is prior to the uh, bank robberies, they would meet at uh, one's house. They had a room set up to where they would leave all of their jewelry, all of their ID, all their belongings before they would go out and commit the robberies. And uh, phenobarbital is just like having a cocktail just to ease, settle their nerves, ease their nerves. And they had no military training. They had a lot of military 
paraphernalia as far as reading material and videos. They had Heat, Speed, um, Soldier of Fortune magazines, uh, videotapes. They found a lot of bomb-making material, bomb-making guides on how to make bombs. Um, but they never found the 50 caliber. The 50 caliber. Extra money. Jeez. Jeez. Well, it, but they also had to learn how to t turn those uh, from semi-automatic into automatic weapons. I mean, it can be done if you know, you know, if you know what they, you're doing. And, but. and you know what? And Morgan, they, they knew that because they had gun parts. They had several gun parts. They came across at their houses. They came across, and this is kind of scary. They had raid jackets, the police jackets, and they had the panels on that you could velcro onto the back that says sheriff or police or fbi so that they could just uh like a movie so they could just pretty much walk anywhere they want and people would think they're law enforcement they had plans they had future plans man it's a good thing sure. you guys did take about that oh yeah day. you know what we could we i mean look we can spend a ton of time talking about this but um you know it's one of those things is that there's a lot of stuff out there we, i watched we're going to ask you a little bit later about the documentary or the film, you know, 44 minutes and stuff. But once, once you finally got settled with Montesorano, um, you got put in the position, you know, you were the guy that you didn't like to speak in front of people, maybe two or three people. And you kind of got voluntold or you got suckered in now into doing all of these briefings. I mean, this is your penance again now, because not only did they <laughs> make like you that. pay. Yeah. They, now somebody said, ah, ask Rick, he'll speak to everybody for us. That's exactly what happened. You know, we were honored uh, several times over the next year, two years. As the you first, should have been. As you should well, have thank been. Thank you. We were, um, we received the Medal of Valor from our, our police department National Tactical Officers Association, the NTOA, recognized us as being the uh, uh, Tactical Officers of the Year. And we went to a conference in uh, Arizona for that. And um, we do some training prior to the conference. And then at the conference, about 1,000 people, uh, our sergeant, the one that put out that broadcast of five to seven police officers down, he was our SWAT sergeant. And he accompanied us and he said, somebody's going to have to speak. And the other two guys real quickly just looked at each other and then pointed at me. And I said, whoa, no, 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 no. And uh, the sergeant said, uh, yeah. And I said, hey, look, I have more than three people in front of me. I don't talk. Uh, I won't talk to them. And he says, what you got to do, he says, just remember two things. Just look at the first three people in the first row. And he goes, just keep in mind, there's people that want to hear what you have to say. So just go ahead and tell your story. He goes, that's that simple. He goes, you're not trying to prove anything. You're not trying to solve anything. Just tell the story. And it went from there to where I was interviewed by just about every news agency, every, because they said, and we're not talking, you know, it's not that they didn't want to. They just don't like being on, on camera. And so um, Discovery, um, Life on the Beat, uh, a number of the different agencies. And then we were honored as being top cops in the United States, and we went back to D.C. and had to speak at a conference that had about 2,000 people with uh, with uh, U.S. dignitaries, and again, they just all pointed at me and said, "Hey, one of the things I said that that I want to I want to stress is that again, you know, they say that we're heroes, but the real heroes there's two real heroes." in law enforcement, and the most dangerous job is not a SWAT cop. I've had this discussion with 
with uh, with a former SWAT cop that went to canine. He says, "Ah, oh, that's the most dangerous." I said, "It's the most dangerous job in any department anywhere across the United States is that of the road cop, is that of the uniform patrol officer, because he doesn't know what he's stopping. He has a car just like uh, the Glendale sergeant had when he pulls that guy over by himself. He he doesn't know what he's got. He's got a thirty-eight or a a nine millimeter or a forty-five on the side of his hip, and that's it. He doesn't have the fancy rifles that we have." But the real heroes, when you stop and think about it, are the the wives, the husbands, the families. You're absolutely right, brother. That's exactly right. Because they uh, they don't know if you're coming home or not. Twenty three pages. They don't know where you're going when you're coming home or not when you leave for work. And all too often. Uh, unfortunately, they don't. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Blessed are the peacemakers. Before things get too, because uh, look, this is the cutting onions piece too, like we had with Joe Piersante, guy, DEA agent, thought shot through the head by the Taliban, what he came through, what you guys have done. I mean, this is just, um, it, you know, it, it pulls at your heart and makes you realize how fortunate we are to live in a place to where we've got the professionally trained people like you, like a lot of the other folks that we've talked to that are out there. I, I want professionally trained people like that defending me. I want you at the range five days out of every month, you know, putting thousands of rounds through that gun. Because when the next North Hollywood shootout happens, when we have a terrorist attack like we did in San Bernardino, our our last podcast guest, uh, Alex Collins, uh, he he responded to that. And this is a guy after getting shot five times by Christopher Dorner, probably should have died, but he didn't, went went back, got on SWAT. I, you know, we just get amazed by these stories of people, but I don't want to leave it in a dark place. We want to have a little bit of fun with you before we turn you loose. So, <laughs> you know, it just wasn't enough being a SWAT officer. You had to decide that you just wanted to become a fucking cook. So. <laughs> well, you know what, I, if... if... If at that same time you would have told me that I was cooking for, uh, for the Oscars uh, under Wolfgang Puck, I would have laughed at you. And, and that all came about. The one, one, thing, one thing I always said that I've learned is that don't ever say no to something you want to do. If you have an idea, if you want to do something, then go out and do it. You know, at least try. And I was setting up the... Um, the security for the governor's ball for the Oscars one year. When it first opened up at Hollywood Highland, I was setting, setting it up. And I got to know Wolfgang Puck's partner, who has since passed away. But he and I had some long talks that first year about cooking. I, could, I, I would tell him that you can throw anything you want on a grill, you know, a piece of meat, but what really sets it off is a sauce, whatever sauce you put with it. And he agreed with me. I don't care if it's chicken or, or what it is. So he said, you want to come in in the kitchen? I have no idea what he meant. I said, sure. And I blew it off. Second year, same thing. How you doing, Matt? And he says, chef. And he says, Rick, you want to come in the kitchen? I said, no. Very intimidating. And think about it. How would you like to go into a, a professional kitchen and to, to go in? You might love to eat. You might love to cook. I'd get thrown out because I'd want to make a peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> and I said, get the hell out of here. <laughs> so, so I blow it off. And then that third year coming up, I got to thinking, not everybody gets invited into Wilkang Puck's kitchen. So I start going to group classes. I grab my girlfriend at the time, which is now my wife, and we start going to group classes and, and, 
at Sur La Table. Sur La Table, they have different cooking classes. And I started taking those cooking classes. And one of those cooking classes, I tell you what, this is while I was still a police officer, still in SWAT. I had a SWAT call-up that got in the way of one of my cooking classes, and I got pissed. I wound up missing a cooking class because of a SWAT call-up. <laughs> okay, but de deploy the gas. We're in in this thing right now. I got a class oh, yeah, to no, get they, to. They, they had two, two suspects run, three suspects run into a house after committing a robbery. We get called out about noon. My class starts at 6. <laughs> and now, this is going to be okay. We'll get out of this. One suspect comes out. Second suspect comes out. And now it's about 4 o'clock. Third one's not coming out. We know he's in there. Won't, and now I'm looking at my client. I got two hours. Well, maybe we can get him out, and I'll uh, just forego the debrief after the call-up. And no, he's not coming out. Now we're going to put tear gas in the place. He's still not coming out. And it's like, son of a bitch. And <laughs> now they want, now they want the guy to go up into the attic to look for the guy. And who's the one and that, that gets... was me? <laughs> <laughs> that was me. So I said, I, I, I actually, I was actually telling him because. Because now it's 6 o'clock, and I've missed my class. And I said, no, put me up in the attic. I want it. I missed my sauce class. Because of that, I missed my sauce class. Uh, I can just imagine, like I said, you bringing him out. It reminds me of my grandmother with me, holding you by the ear. Young man, what did I tell you? And you're just dragging this guy well, out. We brought him out. I brought him out. He was up, he was up in the attic. I got him out. And, and did you explain class. to him? Did you explain to him who you had an appointment oh, with? <laughs> Dag with a robbery. I missed a sauce class. Uh. That's hilarious. So anyway, so I wind up going to classes, and that third year comes around, and I said, yeah, I'll come in. And so I went in um, with a little bit of knowledge, at least how to hold a knife. And sure enough, uh, Matt uh, tosses me my chef whites, Wolfgang chef whites. He goes, go back in sauces and see what you can do. And I went back and had a long talk with the saucier, the chef that was doing sauces. And he and I had a good laugh, and he said, Start making sauces. Here's the recipes for them. And I just became a sponge wow. to where I started cooking for the Oscars. And they hired me as one of their chefs. And and uh, I still do it to this day. Listen to you. I wound up competing on Guy Fieri's show, uh, Ultimate Recipe Showdown, simply because of my daughter. My daughter, who I love dearly, she said, Dad, you got to go on the show. I said, no, I don't. Yeah, you do. You got to go on the show. And the so last day at 11 o'clock, the, the last hour, the 23rd hour or whatever, however they say it, I start submitting recipes, and one of them was a mac and cheese that I had never made before, but I built it because I knew how to build a recipe. I built it on paper, sent it in, and it's done. And I called her the next day. I said, I submitted all my recipes. You're, you know, she, and she was happy. Lo and behold, three months later, I get a call from Food Network saying one of my recipes made the cut out of 14,000 applicants. And it was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I said, what was it? I thought it was some, some other recipe that was really good. And they said, no, it was your mac and cheese. I thought, holy crap. <laughs> so they said, we need to do an interview with you. So they did an interview. And then they said, we need to have you send a three-minute tape of just you showing us what you do and no cooking. So I got a... Food, uh, a really close friend of mine who's a Food Network chef, and I had him videotape this. Now, if you can picture, I've got my SWAT stuff on. I've got my <laughs> rifle, <laughs> magazine inserted, blanks in my gun, over on Hogan's Alley at Police Academy, so I have a, a front door facade, and he is, he is on the other side of the door videoing this. 
And I look at the camera and I said, come on, partner. We've got to stop this guy. We've got to stop him right now. I kick the door, and then he comes around, and so he's videotaping me from the front. I come up on my target, and I crank a couple of rounds off. And I said, those are only, tr uh, those are only warning shots. I told you never to serve raw chicken. And he pans <laughs> to my target, which is a mannequin holding a rubber chicken. <laughs> and I turned to the camera and said, hello, Food Network. This is what I do. This is, my, this is what my job is. Oh. And I take my helmet off, my glasses off, and the you know, two-minute conversation. And they loved it. They loved it. I wish I still had that video. Oh, you should have thrown in there. Plus, I'm a pimp inspector. <laughs> it's kind of like, like I said. I, I asked him, I said, to Food Network, I said, do you think they're going to, the guy that was doing it, he loved it. He says, I said, do you think that Food Network's going to like that video? He goes, well, hell, if they don't, he goes, we could sell this to the, to the NRA or somebody. <laughs> they'd all love it. And then I wound up going on the show, and I wound up actually winning. With and, and Guy Fieri's a great he's a great individual. He's extremely super pro police. He's extremely super pro uh, law enforcement and and uh, fire department. And uh, he and I have stayed friends uh, to this day on uh, on uh, emails back and forth. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of funny. It's very funny. Oh my God! So the first person that ever made it that that, that ever and I started making it when I found I was going to go on. The first person that ever made it was my wife. I said, "Hey, sweetheart, I'm I'm going to Food Network. You got to make this and see what it tastes like. Make, make sure it actually works." <laughs> I know it. Really. Oh and my God. since then, it's gotten five stars. It's still on their website. If you go to my name. We're going to put that on our webpage. We're going to put the links to it. Yeah, the Food Network. I pulled it. When we were doing the pre-call, I pulled it up because I thought you were bullshit. Man, I said, oh, you're bullshit. No, pull it up. Dude, five stars on the Food Network. Here's a, here's a door kicker. A guy who was the shotgunner. A guy who was inserted in through the mail slot. And this guy now is Guy Fietti. He can say Guy Fietti and Wolfgang Puck in the same sentence, and he knows them yeah, both. Yeah. The tunnel room. Wolfgang used to call me his chief of police when I was in his kitchen because he knew I carried, but nobody else did because I had it under my chef lights. Yeah. I carried my forty-five. Yeah. Um, so if you pair the wrong wine with the with the beef, I mean, you might be able to draw out and just oh, yeah. blow away. I'm that, not you going know, down. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, one of my buddies actually used to be the chief of police in Napa Valley. And we would joke about it. It's like, what's the worst thing that happens there? Somebody pairs the red with the wrong thing. I mean, what do you guys respond to there? It's like, uh, you never, you know. The you just don't know. Man, well, there. hey, look. Oh, they they take it serious. Well, speaking of that though, let's let's pimp. Speaking of pimping things, let's pimp. You're you're working on a book called Cop to Cook. Now, this is a unique idea. Nobody's ever done it before. So, and and I've read through a lot of that stuff. You sent it to us. You know. We just don't we just don't say we want to look at it. We actually read through it. In fact, here's the entire chapter on the North Hollywood shootout. Printed out, underlined, highlighted, everything. You know, we look through all of that stuff. And I gotta tell you, if somebody doesn't pick this up, they're they're a fool because just just that promo video of you kicking down the door, firing a couple blanks, and then say, This is me. So tell us about this project you're working on. Basically it's cop to cook. You you want to combine both cooking and copping. You know, guys, because I was involved in a lot of high-profile cases in SWAT, um, high-profile cases, obviously North Hollywood, I was involved with uh, the Rampart scandal, 
uh, with uh, Perez. I was involved in another high profile that was uh, I was a negotiator on with uh, Randy Simmons. He and I negotiated with uh, Roland Stewart, the Rainbow Man, uh, back in the day where you had a guy that was holding up a sign, 315, um, and wearing a, wearing a wig, a rainbow wig at uh, different sporting events. Um, there's a number of others that, uh, that I've been involved in. I decided to just go ahead and write it, and at the same time, to show that because you're in such high-level, uh, stressful situations, that you can also um, be a, a cook, and, and a good one at that. So I came up with, uh, started publishing my recipes, and that's uh, Cop to Cook. Uh, did a lot of training with military, that's in there. Uh, because we did a uh, we did joint training with uh, with SEAL team. We did uh, some some fun stuff also where I was uh, when I was assigned to the mounted unit. We talked about that. I was uh, I don't know if you caught it where I was a rodeo clown. Went to rodeo clown school. <laughs> uh, which, no, you didn't uh, say that. You said you impersonated being a uh, a, a stunt writer, but you never oh, said no, no, clown. No. You sandbagged. No, no, no. I was actually when I was uh, at the mounted unit. Police rodeos were a big thing, and so I wanted to be a part of it. So I can't, I can ride, but I couldn't rope. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a rodeo clown. So I went to rodeo clown school, which is also known as bullfighting school, up in uh, Santa Maria. And that there was supposed to be a week-long school that ended um, uh, the first night uh, after a bull found me and all, <laughs> at that time, 145 pounds of me. And toss me around like a like a rag doll. I was gonna say, why would you want to do that? <laughs> hey, why, why not? You guys are learning who I am. Why not? A little bit of something. That's well, exciting. I was thinking you should have gone back to that lieutenant who wanted to call everybody home that day. Say, hey, would you like to join this? Because you're the biggest clown I know. <laughs> anyway, I caught I you kind just... of by a surprise, huh? I, I'll never forget it. You know, the, unfortunately, they had a sergeant that told me about that. He's he's no longer with us, but. Uh, I'll remember it. I, I remember his name. And he said, he goes, I'm in trouble. I said, why? He goes, because we were told not to go down the street. Because we were told to let him go. We'll catch him another day. Just unbelievable. You don't do that. No. Law enforcement doesn't do that. No. What no. kind of a law you enforcement know. do you have if they do that? No. Uh, you, have the, you have the Afghan you army. Have, that's what you have. You could, you they fucking have, run away. You could have anybody all of a sudden take a city yep. over because they, they know the, the police, police will just go home them. and hope, hopefully you go away and play nice. Well... Hey, the biggest thing, though, is let me ask you the final thing, though. I mean, you dealt with so many things. How, did the cooking keep help keep you sane? I mean, because you had to go, I mean, with all the shit you went through, you know, divorced, remarried, you know, things like that. Did the cooking end up, end up actually helping you stay sane in a, in a really crazy world, in a really, really crazy place? Well, I've been divorced twice. I'm, I have my third wife, and she is a wonderful person. I, Should we refer to her as the future Mrs. Plaintiff number three, or is this <laughs> no, one solid? <laughs> no, she, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary next month, and uh, in Jan first part of January. And I tell you what, it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and she puts up with me, which is the best thing that's ever happened. Well, to just me. remember, dude, with good behavior, she could have whacked you and been out in seven years. So the fact that you're around 10 years. <laughs> oh, no, let me tell you something that I, uh, this is, this is something that she thought at one time that you could drop a bullet and it would explode. And now, and now she has a CCW and carries a, uh, 380 auto and is as good, if not better shot than I am. You made Only her because of her instructor. 
only because instructor. of her instructor, which is myself. <laughs> oh, my and, God. Uh, yeah, she's, a, she's amazing, amazing person. Uh, you made her a believer. And she's a better cook than I am. She and I, are the one, we cook, we actually cater weddings and uh, do all kinds of stuff together. But no, to get back to your question, um, I didn't look for a stress relief only because I kind of look at stress and everybody handles stress differently. And I was one of the negotiators uh, in SWAT. And I became a senior negotiator before I left. And there were a number of positions. One of the stories I sent you which was, I got a medal for, which was a life-saving award. And that was, um, that was Sean. She had, uh, uh, she was gay and came home and found her girlfriend, her roommate, uh, involved with another female. Went out, came back with a uh, gun, shot both of them, and now she's got two hostages and herself, and I'm going to talk to her. And I... I don't want to say that it was like a game because it's not a game, but it was a challenge. That'd be the best way to say it. It was a challenge. And long story short on her, it's you have to be an active listener when you're, when you're negotiating with somebody, when you're talking to them. You listen to every word they say. And she had made, she was so, after I got the two people out, the two uh, hostages out, she was very, uh, very uh, bent on killing herself. Now we had of a suicide. And I had never come across anybody that was so, so complacent with life that she just wanted to kill herself. She was a dog handler, uh, dog trainer. So I, you know, would you, who's going to take care of your dogs? Oh, somebody will. What about your family? Oh, they're not going to care. And she made the comment about, she made the comment about, I, Everybody will get along without me. I just hope he understands. And I said, he, who's he? She goes, and she, she said, God. I said, are you religious? She said, yes. I, she said, they, he's not going to understand my, my life belief. And I said, you believe in God. Do you believe in the Ten Commandments? She said, yes. And I'm reaching for stuff now. Because you're not supposed to say there's certain parameters. There's certain guidelines we can't say. And, I, and now I'm retiring in about a couple of months. I'm throwing all that stuff out the window because I want to save somebody here. And she made the comment um, that she did. And I said, well, then I want, you, I want you to look over your shoulder because right now you're walking hand in hand with the devil because Ten Commandments says, one of them, that you sh thou shalt not kill. And you're going to kill yourself. So just look over your shoulder and get a good look at him because you're walking with the devil. And she paused, and she said, I got to go. And I thought, oh, man, she hung up. And I thought, oh, did I push her too far? She came back on the line a little bit later, and she said, I want to talk to my father. And we never put a third person on, because you don't know what they're going to say. This could be closure. She could be saying that she wants to end her life. Especially and with then, suicidal people. This is their final goodbye, their closure. Yep. But I figured, what do I have to lose? I went out and I talked to her father. I said, you know, your daughter's gay. He did not. I said, look, I'm a, I'm a father. I have a daughter, just like you. And I said, I don't care what she is. I said, I give her the love. And, and in return, she does that you know, for me. And we talked. And so 
She said, yes. So I brought him in. Unknown to the sergeant, didn't know it. Brought him in, and she talked to her father. She said she was sorry, and she said, I'll come out. And I got her on the phone. When she came out, she told me that she went into the bathroom. She sat down on the toilet, put a towel over her head, put the gun up to the side of her temple, and all she could hear was my voice saying, you're walking hand in hand with the devil. And she decided to come out. And it's things like that, that with negotiations, that makes your job very worthwhile. Well, what a way to end an interview. Um, uh, and just, there's not enough words, and you've heard them all. Uh, this is cop-to-cop stuff, man. Uh, you, you know, you hang out with us, you'll never buy a drink again. Um, you know, except you're going to cook. You're going to fucking make hey, five hey, cheese, go, yeah. mac and cheese. <clears throat> We're going to try that. <laughs> you're mac cooking, but I'm buying the drinks, though. So, uh, I'll cook and you, know you guys what? anytime you want. Tell me where. Well, Murph, you know, I'm thinking we should dress up in our tux and stuff. I think we should be at the Oscars as his, uh, you know, as his sauce boys <laughs> yes. or whatever they call them. <laughs> I came across, I came across, it's funny, I came across one of our SWAT lieutenants at a Medal of Valor that I was at Wolfgang Pucks for, I was cooking for. And he was one of our, our sergeants. And he looked at me, and I'm all in my chef wise, and he goes, what in the hell? And he said, you probably don't know what the cycling rate of a 223 is, do you, anymore? And I said, what's a 223? <laughs> <laughs> is that the size of the saucepan that they will use with my new French recipe? You know, oh, my God. Well, dude, this has been – look, we, we could go on for a long time, but um, we can't because obviously we're all old, and Murph's has to pee, oh, I believe, absolutely. at this point. <laughs> absolutely. Guys, it's been a pleasure. The pleasure's been mine. I know you've briefed this many, many times, but I so appreciate the enthusiasm you put into it, the way you prepared for it, the way you tell the story, and sharing your story with people. This was the number one requested episode we got from our players out there, our people who listened to us that said they wanted to hear about. So they're going to hear about oh, it, yeah. and they're going to hear about it, not from somebody who sat on the sidelines. They're going to hear about it. I appreciate that. I appreciate From somebody that. who was there. And this is me. You folks on the air can't see it, but this is me saluting you, sir. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, what words do you have, Murph? I, I don't. I'm, I'm just at a loss. What can you say? Rick, it's been an honor just to meet you to start with, and and for you to, it's been an honor to have you on here, brother, and and to, for you to share your story. You know, it, it's this happened in 1997, right? And it's still said 25 years this coming February 28th. And it's still prevalent today. The you know the lessons learned from this, the fact that you've moved on. You know, nobody. People don't go into law enforcement to shoot other people. They go into law enforcement to help their fellow man. And you have done this over and over. You know, if people would only realize that, and like I said earlier, and I'll leave you with this thought, is that a police officer doesn't get put a uniform on and say, I'm going to kill somebody today. Right. If people would only comply with what the officer requests, there would be zero number of shootings that you have. Absolutely. But it's when you get the noncompliance that then uh, creates problems. Yep. I don't want to shoot anybody, but we just request something. We know something's going on. We have a feeling. And if you're fine and if everything's good, then you're going to walk away. Then we're all Absolutely. good. If, if you're doing something bad and they want to talk to you, you're going to wind up going to jail. God bless you, brother. Thank you so much for coming on Game of Crimes. Same. Guys, have a nice Thanksgiving. God bless you.
And remember, when the 25th anniversary hits and people are saying, is there a place where we can go listen to the real story? You point them back to Game of Crimes podcast right. and this episode as being the definitive episode of all time that we heard not only from the cop, but we heard from the cook. There you go. And the Wolfgang Puck saucier, <laughs> the man that you are. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. <laughs> all, right, all right, brother. Everybody stay tuned. Man, if this doesn't just make you stand up and salute and go, motherfucker, these, I mean, to, to know that these guys are armed with armored piercing rounds, they, they have, they're shooting up everything in sight, and you don't know how many officers are down, and you still take the fight to them. I mean, again, here you can't see me, but this is me saluting all of those people that day, everybody who ponied up, who saddled up, you know, and uh, went and did the work. I'm with you, brother. And, you know, not only were they shooting at the cops, they were shooting innocent civilians out there, you know, people that are unarmed. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are two true pieces of shit that, you know, got what they deserved that day. And then the audacity of, of uh, you know, I'm not even going to give the guy credit of, of mentioning his name. He's deceased now, but his family sued the police department and Rick and For his wrongful buddies. death. Yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, people just take this to the utmost extremes that just make you think, I thought I'd seen it all, but damn, they can surprise me over and over and over again. But the cool thing about Rick is what he's doing now. Oh, you know, dude. it's all we, it's all we could do not to say something during the intro on this. I know. We want Cooking you guys for to hear the that. Oscars, please. Yeah. You, <laughs> well, I used to guard you. Now I am the saucier. Now I am the head chef. Now I am oh, the you know Wolfgang Puck of uh, LAPD. Here's a, here's a guy who was you know probably maybe the smallest guy that's ever been on LAPD SWAT. <laughs> You know, the tunnel rat for them <laughs> out there, badass kicking butts and taking names. And now he's a cook, he's a chef, and he won the, the cooking contest. I mean, I'm going to download that, that mac and cheese. I'll probably, well, we probably put it on, it, but we put it on the website, folks. So go to the website, gameofcrimespodcast.com, click on his episode. We put his pictures there, the link to the five cheese mac and cheese winner. Yeah. on the Food Network is on there. I mean, this guy's been hanging out with Guy Fieri, with Wolfgang Puck. Wolfgang's partner passed away, I think he said. And But he's he's, he's putting on his whites. He's going to cook for the Oscars again. Hey, and now he got, to hang, he got to hang out with Murph and Morgan. His life hey, is dude, complete I mean, now. Uh, you know, <laughs> our work here is done now, now that he's been able to do that. But, you know, it was so awesome because we think back to when we were kids watching One Adam 12 and Dragnet and stuff. Oh, yeah. And knowing Rick says this is one of the reasons he joined up. I mean, I just long for the days when you can give, go back to having those types of police shows. And, you know, like he said, there was a lot of respect for law enforcement back then. Yeah. Hopefully we're on that curve back. And, you know, I came up with an idea. Everybody talks about, you know criminal justice reform or reform. I said, no, guys, it's not about reform. It's about improvement. This is always a process of continuous improvement. We improved on our tactics from 20 years ago, didn't we, Murph? Oh, From absolutely. 30 years ago. Absolutely. We've improved our weapons. We've improved our body armor. We've improved less than lethal force, right? This is about improvement, not reform. I mean, you as you improve things, things take care of themselves. Problems take care of themselves. You know, not to get on the soapbox, but just very quickly, just remember, you know, you hear about that infinitesimal. Yeah, that's a big word for you, Mark. Damn just right. say big, That's more three uh, syllables. <clears throat> really small. Just say really small. <laughs> There's an extremely <laughs> small percentage of cops that are bad, and we make no bones about it. Nobody hates a bad nope. cop more than a good cop. So when they f- screw up, I'm fine with them going to prison, and they should get more than what the street criminals get because they took on a responsibility to serve they the They had public. an oath. 
carrying the carrying that badge of honor of being a public servant. Holy cow! I mean, some some people in our profession take it to the nth degree, like Rick Mazza. <laughs> My gosh, man! <laughs> and and to have the presence of mind to drop down on the ground and shoot under the car. I mean, that's just you know you got to you know your that's wits that about training you. kicking in. And speaking of training in kicking in, we've got a lot of good episodes coming up. Um, we don't know, like you say. Because of the way that we're doing things now, we don't always know what episode's going to come out next, but I will tell you some of the stuff we have coming up. Two female officers, one from California, one from Virginia, both shot, mm-hmm. both shot in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Claudia Apollinar, we just got through recording her episode. She was one of the two sheriff's deputies that was ambushed over in Compton, uh, you know, and there's tons of video out about that. I mean, such amazing guys. We've got such amazing stories. And I think the thing too is, Steve, it humanizes things. I mean, you really hear about the person. You right. hear that they're a mom, they're a father, they're a brother, they're a sister. I mean, all the things they do, and yet they still choose to put on the badge, the uniform, and go out and do this. And when they do, a lot of them pay a huge price, like Alex Collins, like Kevin Stevens, you know, like Joe Piersante. You know, well, we've got like, a, you know, Rick. It, Rick brought it up, brought it uh, around very well for everybody to understand that he's on this call and and it's going out across the media and his his daughter paged him. They didn't have cell phones back then. She paged him 20, 25 times, just wanting to check on her dad to make sure he was okay. That's how this occupation, this career path affects your families. They worry, you know, they worry themselves to death. It takes a special family and it really takes a special spouse. I hear Spud in the background there. It really (laughs) takes a special family to put up with a, a law enforcement career. You know, you're, you're extremely fortunate. I am as well. Oh, yeah. uh, God bless the families. They're as big a heroes as any law enforcement officer ever was. Oh, absolutely. And look, we got a we got a great uh, compliment on um, Instagram from Alex Collins' wife. Um, oh, yeah. She heard she heard us give us a shout out there at the end. So, oh, good for I her, just, man. Thank yeah, you. I mean, thank you for letting us talk to your husband. The spouses, the the wives, the husbands, whatever. All of these folks, they're so important. Well, hey guys. Um, again, tell one, share one, tell one person about Game of Crimes, share one episode with them, give them the gift of Game of Crimes this holiday season, and it will make <laughs> your life better. It will make our life better. And it will keep Murph from being homeless and being on the streets in the mean city of Orlando, Florida. Well, I was going to say that you need to go feed Spudden up there. I, I did. I did already, man. These, <laughs> these cats, folks, I'm sorry. I love it. <laughs> Uh, I, I close the doors, but they know how to, I've got a sliding barn door, you know, for my office and stuff and they know how to open it up. But it's like, yeah. no, no, I need attention, daddy. I need it. It's like yeah. kids all over again. You never know what you're going to hear on this podcast. <laughs> no, but the one thing you will always hear as we close it off. Thank you for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. The game of crimes. Crimes.